what is up designers and welcome back to the grand design podcast um today we have a super exciting episode and so i'm gonna let the episode kind of speak for itself but today's episode is about free will um a lot of us have our decisions emotions actions our ideas implanted in our head from entities outside of ourselves unbeknownst to ourselves and it is absolutely tearing our lives to shred to shred to shreds um and the question of this podcast is are you thinking your own original thoughts or are you being controlled from entities without your own knowledge okay super long super intense and super beautiful episode and i can't wait to share it with you um so yeah without further ado i'm going to push you over to the theme music but before i do that if you enjoy this podcast uh subscribe as always and rate and leave a little message because you know that's the way podcasts get Push through the algorithm on iTunes, apparently. Uh, so here's the theme music. How do people like us, the visionaries, the creatives, real people with real ideas, people who don't have mass budgets, platforms, or teams, and people who live in this noisy world dominated by internet gurus, influencers, and big brands, the people attempting to make a dream on our own dollar, how do we get our ideas to pierce through all the noise in not only a massive, but a massively profitable way? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Dallas, and this is Grand Design, the podcast about taking the ideas in your head, pushing them out into the world, and forming mass movements. All right, designers, welcome back to another episode. First and foremost, I want you to get present to this moment with me. And so we're here in LA. It's pretty late at night. I want you to just take in the air, taking a deep breath and breathe. Just look at your surroundings. Look at all the granular little details of it all. And just be here with me in today's episode. Because as always, we're going to bring to you a really intense one. Okay? As always, man, I'm walking through. You can probably hear like the cars crickets, the wind, because I'm walking through the parking garage of my apartment complex uh, to bring you this episode. And I do that on every episode so that you can feel like, uh, you know those nights where you're just chilling with your homie and you're just walking late at night and you're talking about life? I wanted to feel like one of those episodes because I feel like that's something I would have appreciated, you know, to hear that ambience of the night and of real nature in some of the podcasts I used to listen to when I was a little bit younger. And so I'm walking through the parking garage and I just want you to, wherever you're at, just taking a deep breath and be right here with me. It's your host, Dallas. You know, as always and beyond anything, I hope to this point in time, your friend. And today we're going to talk about your thoughts in your head. Because for a lot of people, and I don't mean to get intense quick, a lot of people think they have independent thought. They think they're literally going day to day making decisions. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of the thoughts and ideas that we have are being, without our knowledge, being planted in our minds. It's like somebody's drilling a hole in our head or an entity from somewhere somewhere outside of ourselves are planting ideas in our 
brain without our consent. Okay? I feel like in the world, in the modern world, a lot of that is going on. And it is the cause for the disarray, the discontentment, and the destruction that's going on in a lot of people's lives. Okay? Literally, at some point in our lives, a lot of the ideas that we have are formed this way. And it is unbeknownst to us. And it tears our life apart. I feel like at some point in our lives, an idea, a seed is planted into our mind from somewhere outside of us. And that seed is a malicious seed, but our brain, or we, our consciousness is unable to tell. And so we tend to that seed and grow that seed as if it's something that we came up with on our own. And as we grow that seed, because it came from somewhere outside of us, and it's a malicious thing, it grows and grows, and we we end up tending our own destruction. We end up tending our own peril, raising our own peril from nothing. And to the point where a lot of us wake up every single day and manufacture from thin air our own stress, our own panic, our own rage, our own depression, our own sorrow from quote unquote facts that we can neither confirm nor deny. We basically wake up every day and stress our own selves out on the basis of freaking delusions day in and day out. I want to ask you this question, man. Is that, you know, think about what, what, you know, think about the thoughts that loop in your head every day. What is looping in your mind every day? Okay. What is it that's looping in your mind every day? What are the thoughts that you have over and over and over and over and over? Are you thinking about black lives matter? All lives matter? Blue lives matter? Are you thinking about George Floyd? Are you thinking about the riots? Are you thinking about coronavirus? Are you thinking about the military you know what they did to that young lady that it was a horrible incident i don't know all the details of it. my girlfriend told me about it though and are you thinking about that you know depending on who we are in, in society you know that element of our life is usually very defining of the branch of thoughts that will loop in our mind over and over and over and over again and a lot of people think they're waking up every day and feeling things that they want to feel and making decisions that they want to make when a lot of these feelings, a lot of these emotions, a lot of these thoughts that loop in our brain come from entities outside of ourselves and are planted in our minds without our consent and are actually things that really don't forward us or put us back or have any relevance to our lives at all. You know, what percentage of the things that loop on in your head, just for example, now I'm not saying everything that's in your mind comes from the media, it could be friends, it could be culture in general. You know, what percentage of what's in your mind looping every single day is reflected in the media in the screens that are around you, whether it be a cell phone screen, a television screen, how much of your thoughts are possessed by the information that you see on screens or is identical to the information that you see on screens? Now, did that information on the screen come from your head or did it come from the screen? And think about how that information exists in cooperates with the other emotions that are in your body how do you feel every day do you wake up every day and you feel afraid oh the corona do you wake up every day and you feel rage do you feel anger do you feel offended do you feel sad do you feel depression do your thoughts just run rampant in your mind and just just wreak havoc every single day in a in a in a re- weird spasm or neuroticism until you just 
get you just go through the motions of depression and sadness and angry and afraid and fear until you just lie down and let those thoughts wash over you and you have no longer any energy to control your mind or do anything other than just lay is that an experience that you've had now tell me man if these are your own original and independent thoughts is that something that you would do to yourself day in and day out I had a talk with my girlfriend a few days ago and she said I'm just going to make my head hurt with this conversation, so I'm not going to have it. Are the conversations that are you willing yourself to have thoughts that are going to hurt your head, that are going to give you headaches, that are going to give you migraines, that are going to put you down and disable you from doing the things that are true to your heart? Okay, when's the last time you thought of the things that were true to your heart? It's important to trace our thoughts and wonder, wait, where did that one come from? That's a very important process because a lot of people think they're making decisions and that they're taking actions, but really all they're doing is watching other people take actions, watching other people make decisions, watching other people come with thoughts, and just reacting to them. And there's nothing original coming from our brain, nothing substantially original coming from our brain at all. And so in today's episode, I want to explore, is this true? Are thoughts being implanted in our minds without our own will and unknown to us? And are those thoughts tearing apart our lives? And if that is true, I also want to explore, how is it that, because this podcast is all about mass movements, how is it that we utilize this exact same process of surreptitiously implanting thoughts into people's minds in order to help them for the better? Okay. A lot of people think they're making unique decisions on their own, but really they're just brainwashed by culture. Okay. And I was talking about this in the last podcast episode, which in this segment right here is a small little box. I'm going to talk about a little bit about that last podcast episode. And that's why in the last podcast episode, the episode before the last, I was talking about and making fun of a lot of entrepreneurs. Because a lot of entrepreneurs think they're original and think they're coming up with something innovative. When really all they're doing is copying the ideas and the thoughts of somebody who was once innovative because they said it first. You understand what I mean? A lot of people in my time, and that's why, I, you know, I, I really just despise the culture. Not being an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur in a true sense is one thing, but I despise the culture it has become. Because everybody is reflecting the same ideas and think it's so original, and they don't even know it. They're saying and repeating things that aren't even true, but because somebody they look up to said it, they hold those ideas near, near and dear. They're entrepreneurs that are at the top of the game that were original that are the innovators and they're implanting these ideas into people's heads without them even knowing it how many people say how many entrepreneurs say oh grind hustle wake up at 5 a.m oh i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm an entrepreneur coach social media marketing agency the internet is the future how many of these sayings and phrases, which is why I just want to shut down all my timelines right, right now, because it's old and it's stale, it's dull and it's boring. Do you hear over and over and over and over again, and people say it with the zeal of somebody who, feel, who, who believes that they invented this? That's culture. But there is no real actual substance behind a lot of these things once you really boil it down. Someone just woke up one day and saw somebody deciding and trying something out and then they was like hey i look up this person i'll try it for myself without even for once questioning the meaning behind some of these things that are being said on my timeline okay and so the question it becomes are we being brainwashed by culture 
also in the last podcast episode, you know, uh, besides making fun of entrepreneurs, because we're going to dive in a little bit more into that particular aspect later in this episode, because everything I see in this podcast episode, I make fun of entrepreneurs because I've done the exact same thing, because I'm a complete hypocrite. We're going to explore that too. A lot of the things I make fun of people for, social media marketing agency, I've done that. Oh, uh, let's write a course. Oh, you need a webinar. Oh, sales is lifeblood of a business. I've said every one of these things, and I continue to say every one of these things, and I continue to mimic the same culture that I grew up on. Because it's hard to unwire what you know, even when you realize it's not rooted in anything substantial and real. Also, in the last pocket episode, though, I was telling you, and this is why, because a lot of people, you know, part of the culture is only the ownership of things. Oh, we got this nice Lamborghini. Oh, we got these nice houses, which I, I appreciate the. You know, Ty Lopez was the original of that. Let's not be honest. I mean, let's let's be honest. Ty Lopez was the originator of that. That was innovation when he did it. But now you say, "Oh, we, we you know everyone wants to prop themselves up to be something of significance because that's what the culture has brainwashed them to do." But in the last podcast, so that was one of the reasons why I was telling you this. In the last podcast episode, I run off a list of things that are unlike the culture that apply to me. You know, the last episode I sold me, my bank account was at negative nine dollars. And in fact, my podcast had gone a week unpaid for. And that was the reason because the podcast has gotten shut down because I didn't have fourteen dollars to pay for it. I went so long without posting another episode till today. Okay? And so my podcast charge had actually bounced my credit score is like four forty five and it stays pretty much in that general ballpark range. Um and since then my bank account was actually shut down because I couldn't pay off my negative balance. Okay? This is the reality of life. And whereas... But, but, but there's, a, there's a difference in the emotion behind some of these things. Because a lot of people, they'll prop themselves up and they'll have things to support a lifestyle that they envision other people would want them to have. You know, they'll have the Lamborghinis and the cars and all those things. And, but a lot of them will be neurotic. A lot of them will be in a in a never-ending pursuit, you know, in a chase. And a lot of them will be also very freaking happy because that's what they like. Some people just like those things also. That's another one. Oh, the message is not to, you know, the, the, the key is not to look rich, but to be rich or some, some stupid stuff like that. And they say, all the, you know, $160 billion and not one Gucci belt. Sorry, well, some people just like Gucci belts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's also completely possible too. But I say all these things because I want to be transparent. I feel like where it's a lot of people mimicking culture, there's very seldom people actually embodying and preaching the idea of being an individual within this arena, being yourself. And that transparency is something that's unique to this journey that I feel like a lot of people resonate and want to hear because they don't hear it often. I also wanted to mention, despite all this list of things that I just named out, all these things that people will see as a dire situation, uh, despite the fact that challenge is at an all-time high in my personal life, I'm all, my joy, my fulfillment, my peace, despite having more at past times, is also at an all-time high. And I want to talk about why it is and you know why it hasn't always also been that way in this podcast episode today. If you know anything about me, man, you know, I didn't start off with much, you know, uh... I didn't start off with a terrible little or anything like that. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, in their own right, they started out with a silver spoon or whatever it may be. You know, I didn't come from rich or wealthy or anything like that. But 
also my perspective on this is kind of a little different than what most people you know might say despite what most of society would say is uh not so glorious or a humble beginning i feel like i was very spoiled in a way you know in the way i was raised in the way i came up you know so this just uh a little anecdote to kind of give you a little perspective of where i began and how my perspective on the world has developed from those beginnings you know how I was systematically taught what it is to value unbeknownst to me okay i remember uh it was my fourth grade year okay my fourth grade year i made a little transition in life i went from you know going to the baltimore city schools okay which i was never in like the city city like baltimore city and baltimore county is a gradient it goes from like suburbs and rich neighborhoods which is like all county to like baltimore city and super poor neighborhoods like city city you know what i mean and then it's like a gradient in between you know you go from suburb to city and in between city and suburb and for the large majority of my life i've always been in between city and suburb okay but like i started off on the further end like uh closer to city like i'm in the almost i'm like if it's like i'm in the bottom 25 percentile type type of ordeal okay but interestingly enough when i was younger that's like it's not something that ever bothered me or ever appeared out of the ordinary to me in any sort of way or fashion okay and that's because for a large part of the reason when we're younger that is uh, a long shot or a long way before we we're programmed into feeling some type of way about all the tiny little variables about life and spazzing out about everything in the freaking world okay so i went from literally pre-k to well, i skipped pre-k so kindergarten to about what fourth grade going from like apartment to apartment to apartment to apartment and i never really thought about much about social economic status or anything like that um you know i remember the first apartment i'm not going to go through all of them in extreme detail but i remember the first place we had was kind of like city um was across from my grandmother and the next place we had was an apartment uh in this place called walker avenue um you know no basement I think like two bedrooms or something like that. Um, the next place we were on was some, a place called Saturn Court. I'm sorry, people were driving in the parking garage above me. The next place we were at was a place called Saturn Court. And Saturn Court was, you know, it's just, just, just another apartment, okay? Um, no basement, two rooms. You know, I slept in the bed with my other brothers, you know, things like that. And I remember when I, you know, in, oh man, I went to this city, a city school called Govins Elementary, which... Like I said, at the time, it didn't really even bother me. Like, you know, nothing, like, which ironically, weirdly enough, now it wouldn't bother me. But I remember being at Goldman's Elementary School, and life was just pretty stellar all the way around. Now, there was, like, all the whites in the school, like, not white people, but, like, the whites as in the white walls, the white floors were tinted, like, yellow because the school was not the best tended to. You know, baby, graffiti on the walls, piss all in the bathroom, fights every day, um pretty dystopian in a lot of ways <laughs> um and you know even when while we were going there our principals and the drug education teacher actually were selling like crack out of the trunk of their car and they went to jail and they it was on the news and all that we did a like bunch of protests and things like that the protest was on the news in a school called Goldman's elementary and i remember the drug ed teacher he would come in every day he was actually a four-time wrestling state champ from from mcdonough 
Um, he would come in every day and be like, don't do drugs. And uh, it turns out he was selling the drugs. He was the, he was the dealer, which not very smart business tactics, if I do say so myself. But um, yeah, I got busted for drugs. And then and even in elementary school, that first city school I went to, I didn't really know a lot of people of different races and different cultural backgrounds. Um, you know, to me, like the school, like really the school was just all kind of all black. Okay, which... Like I said, it didn't, didn't really mean anything to me back then either. Um, except I did have a few white teachers. You know, one of the white teachers, her name was uh, Mrs. Mitchell. I think Mrs. Mitchell might have been the first white person I ever saw in my life. Um, and Mrs. Mitchell, man, I love Mrs. Mitchell. Mrs. Mitchell was like a mother to me. You know, I would hug her after school, after I leave in the class. And, man, I, I, Mrs. Mitchell was really cool. Um, but I remember in fourth grade year, it was the Christmas of fourth grade year. Um, we got this new house, man. I remember even a few weeks prior, we were checking out the house, checking out the specs of it and all that. Like, we would drive in this little quaint little Maryland neighborhood. You know, it's not in the suburbs, but it's more suburban than the neighborhoods we came from. Okay, this is the house we live in to this day, actually. And we would drive in this little neighborhood. And I remember looking at this neighborhood like, man, this is kind of different. You know, we could play outside here. We could chill. We could relax. We could enjoy ourselves. Um, I remember looking at, like, the people in the neighborhood, they, like, walking dogs, you know, doing regular stuff. You know, not a lot of people hanging on porches or hanging on the corner, not a lot of action going on, even in the summertime. You know, trees everywhere, flowers blooming. In front of the house that we would eventually pick, man, there was, like, uh, there's two sets of bushes. You know, there's a pink, especially in the spring, there's a pink set at the bottom and a red set at the top or uh, vice versa or something like that. I've been home in the spring for a year or something like that but uh i remember if we looked at like i remember pulling in front of this house and seeing the windows in front of it and like oh man this house has a basement like and you look through the windows of the basement and you see like it had a back room to the basement and i remember touring the house for the first time with my parents and my other brothers and seeing like oh it has a basement and then it has a back to the basement for laundry but not only that it has a bathroom and the bathroom in the basement was completely out of order and actually never got to functioning because it was just a complete disaster but it was like yo we have a bathroom in the basement and it has these double sinks and the lights when you flick them on at night or flick them off at night they have like this little glow to them like a night light uh the light switches um and more, more than that, when you go out the back, you know, there's a patio, like not a patio, a deck, like it's like off the ground, like, like, like what, about six, seven feet off the ground, probably like six, six feet off the ground, like it's a deck, like, I don't know, a six, maybe not even that, maybe it's like four or five feet off the ground, because I have to kind of duck down when I go on the deck, but it's a pretty big freaking deck, like it's, it's not like a, it's not a patio, it's a deck, okay? <laughs> Man, and I remember like going out on the deck and like, yo, if we get this house, we'll have a deck. Like, we can sit out here and cook out and things like that. And and, and on the ground, like, as a yard with grass and things like that. And it has a driveway, which I don't remember ever, ever having a yard before, other than at the first place we were at, which I don't know, it wasn't like that yard, man. This yard was, it wasn't like a massive yard, but it was a townhouse, okay? Uh, but it was a beautiful townhouse. It was something I hadn't experienced before. And uh, it was made of brick like every other townhouse. But I remember the first day, it was like December 25th. I believe we moved into the house on Christmas of 2006 or 2005 or something like that. The year the Xbox came out because we got an Xbox that Christmas. And I remember just feeling like going in the house, feeling like feeling like we made it. Like feeling like uh, like we upgraded, like we, we fancy or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, it was something I valued. Okay. And... 
even at that young age, I was in fourth freaking grade, it, it wasn't something that I knew I valued, but just intuitively, like, it just clicked in my head, like, this is valuable, this is swag, this is rich, this is drip, you know what I mean? Uh, and as I'm saying this, like, look back on your life in some of your earliest moments and dissect some of the things that you intuitively valued and really, for your own sake, dissect why it is at that early age you value these sorts of things. Because it really is kind of freaky when you break it down to the essence, man. And so, I remember even when we moved to that house, uh, our school zones even switched. And so, we went to the, like, from like city school to Govins Elementary School where, you know, it was all types of wild stuff going on. Like, I, I remember at Govins Elementary, Miss Taylor, my second grade teacher, who was now the principal, had me scrubbing desk after school. My like, what year is it? 1996? Like, because I was drawing on the desk, I, you know, freaking lady in there used to substitute, used to say, oh, y'all, y'all must have lost y'all cotton picking mine. Like, it was like the Wild West at that school, like, really looking back on it in the memories. School didn't have any school buses. Everybody would leave the school and walk home, and sheesh, it was just a mess. But they did have a really nice and sizable playground. I give it that. But, um, yeah, we moved to a new school zone, and we're going to this school called Pleasant Plains. Right and uh, Pleasant Plains is like, sheesh! Like, I don't know how to explain Pleasant Plains. Like, Pleasant Plains was uh, it was like first school I walked into that was actually like multicultural. Like, there were like a lot of white people there, like a lot of Asian people, a lot of different types of people. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. The school's all proper and like, you know, like proper and prim and uptight and like, I don't know. It was just like a regular suburb. Like, the school was like really suburban. Like, trees outside of the front and everything. Everybody must get on the bus to go home after school unless you have a signed parent to pick you up. Um, just a completely different experience. Um, you know, you look back on your life. Do you ever have a time where you jumped in like socioeconomic status into a different zone and it just feels kind of odd? Uh, I love Twas the Plains, though. And, um, like I said, I mean, it really shocked my core it, it accustomed my palate to a different taste we were fancy now like we were in a different bracket altogether now and my friends that i met like it, it was just in t- it, was, it was just such a huge difference in culture you know even in terms of some of the music that would be played you know we shifted into a zone where more people knew a lot a lot of pop instead of a lot of the rap that was coming around out around at the time a lot less fights a lot more kindness um just the, just the air, the density of the air. And one of the biggest things about LA that I feel like I really don't like is that it's, it's, a, it's a, like, it's a very tense place. You know, it's very dense energy around LA. You know, everybody's kind of shifty and shady and particularly in the city. It's really dense energy, fast moving and uh, it's not light and free and fluffy and fun and beautiful um, like you would expect of a city like this. Uh, until you get out into some of the other places like Santa Monica and everybody's just relaxing. Their muscles are just relaxed and loose and they're just enjoying their time. They're present to the moment. Um, yeah, so the school that I was in, uh, that was kind of the transition. Like The school I was in was kind of more light and relaxed and drawing back a real academic environment instead of just kind of like uh, a crazy mess of whatever you want to call it. And so, so Pleasant Plains, you know, I, I enjoyed that pretty much that same exact status and the same exact lifestyle for through that school and all the way to my middle school years and I remember going into middle school was some of the first times in my life I had begun to actually have some type of freedom and some type of autonomy around my own self but really that really occurred first when I was going from eighth grade to ninth grade year because my brother he was practicing he was a cross-country like team captain since his sophomore year of high school and so I wanted to be like him and so I started training for cross-country uh, going into my freshman year um, Man, we practiced hard. 
but more so than any practice, that was the first time because, you know, my parents were strict. You know, they didn't, you know, they, they were always worried about their children. They always look, you know, super careful, super careful. And so we were never allowed to, like, leave the block in my house. And so you would either be out front or out back at the top of the block or at the bottom of the block. You couldn't cross the street, you know, none of that stuff. Like, you need to be on the block or you're not. But in eighth grade, since I'm growing up, obviously, this is the first time in life, like, we kind of allowed to, like, cross the street and, like, like uh, go, like, leave the block overall. And so I remember when uh, my brother, I started jogging my brother to practice for the up, upcoming cross-country season so that I could be great like he was. Um, we started to leave the block. And we went on so many long ride, like long runs. Like the runs that we would go on was kind of insane. Like we would go like for the first time in my life. I've never jogged before that moment. Like I would actually have shin splints jogging with me. I didn't even know what shin splints was back then. Like we would jog like five miles out. Like which as an eighth grader who's never jogged before, that is insane distance. So we drive five, six, seven, eight miles. You know, in just one day, and just take all these different routes and different crossroads and, you know, different back roads and things like that through these different neighborhoods in my own county. Well, my own, yeah, my own county, I guess, which was Parkville at the time, which was Baltimore County. I don't know how all this stuff works. Don't ask me. Um, how these names work, like LA, LA County. Like, I, I don't know how it works. Come on. And uh, we would go through these different back roads and draw miles and miles and miles. And a lot of the times, like, we, I would feel so free. Like, I feel free as a bird. Like, we take our shirt off and it would be like the middle of the summer going into night for a year. We young, you know, like, we looking, you know, we looking fire. We looking good. You know, we jog through the summer. Like, it'd be sunrise when we start. Not sunrise, but it would be you know, the sun will be up in the sky when we start and it'd be beautiful butterflies, flowers everywhere, grass blooming up. And we run on these different routes well into when the sun would start to come down and it would get dark and it would be blue in the sky. And we'd be jogging through these different neighborhoods that I've never seen. I remember some of these jogs, I'd come back from so exhausted, like I'd piss and like, I remember one time my piss was like literally brown. Like I never had something happen. Like I'd never been that dehydrated in my life before. And uh, I had bad shit because I was running with him and Converse's and I don't think neither of us knew the best equipment. He told me to use running shoes because he was the expert, but I, you know, I was a young guy. But I remember on those long runs, I started to map out and define like, I started to be exposed to different areas outside of the bubble that I had been living my entire life. And that was one of the first places where I really felt a twinge of comparison between me and the rest of the world where we stood you know those wrong young right ages which uh eighth grade i must have been 13 years old or something like that going on 14 or fresh freshly turned 13 like that's those are the ages where you're really starting to question the world around you and kind of formulate your identity so these were especially critical experiences uh, you probably can relate to some of these things, like, like right, like when you were eighth grade, like, and the world just started to, ex- like, in an extremely, like, like uh, almost unimaginable rate, begin to expand around you. And so I remember eighth grade year, we were running through this, uh, my well, eighth grade summer. It was this one night, man. We were running through this, uh, this back roads. It was a summer night, super, super warm, like it gets back in Maryland. So it's probably like a 70, probably 80, mid 80 degree night or something like that. And we're running through this back road. It's pitch, pitch, like it's kind of dark in this neighborhood, except for like the, the, like the lights along the road. Um, we were running down the street called Oakley. If you know anything about Maryland, if you've ever been in Maryland, it is absolute, Maryland is one of the most gorgeous states, if not the most gorgeous state in the entire U.S. 
absolutely stunning, absolutely gorgeous. And I don't say that just because I come from Maryland. It's like, yes, I do. Um, no, not really, man. It, it's, it's gorgeous. So we're running through the night in this like this quiet back road in the middle of this nice, humid summer night. And all you hear is the crickets just making their songs. All you see is like, you know, because these other neighborhoods are like some of these neighbors we run through because it is Maryland are surrounded by lush green forests and grass and so back in the like around surrounded us back in the deep cuts of the forest like you would see like the fireflies and we call them lightning bugs but you would call them fireflies I mean you see the lightning bugs like they blink green and they go out and it'd be like thousands and thousands and thousands of them and so we're cutting through some of these neighborhoods and some of these back roads and um I remember that was one of the first times I actually opened my eyes and like really was exposed to you know my surroundings like the surroundings that were immediately around me obviously um i remember jogging through this neighborhood called oakley and like looking at some of the houses and i'm noticing like whereas our house is great it's beautiful these houses were different you know they were standalone houses in this neighborhood cut in a cut back in nature in this beautiful environment and they have these driveways with multiple fancy cars in it fancy like uh I don't know, just like shiny cars, I guess, because they weren't like extreme, like they weren't hyper or super cars or anything like that. But they would have like a, you know, like a Corvette every now and then, a Charger, something like that, um, a BMW. That's a perfect example. Um, so we'd be running through these these neighborhoods, and like I would look at some of these houses, and they weren't made out of the same. Like they were standalone houses, first off, which is like wow, that's that's wealth. Um, and they wouldn't be made out of brick. They would be made out of like siding or uh, whatever you call it, like that little pseudo wood or whatever you call it. Um, I don't know what it's necessarily called. You know, the, the, the name of it is eluding me. But you know when houses are not, are not made out of brick, they're made out of that other stuff. Um, they were made out of that. And they would have like these beautiful gardens out front and these lawn lights leading down to the street. And like I said, they would have these tar, black, paved smooth driveways with bunches of cars. They would have garages and things like that. And the house would just be a sizable house. Um, with you know, just positioned in such a beautiful way, they have pools in the back and things like that. And I remember looking at some of these houses. These are like a hundred to two hundred thousand dollar houses. Um, maybe some of them get two, two, two twenty, two fifty, or something like that. But I remember looking at these houses. You can see those numbers aren't that big. But I remember looking at some of these houses and thinking, like, these are some of the most wealthy people on the planet. Like I remember just like running through these like these backward neighborhoods and thinking like these are some of the most rich people in the world. Like these like this is just crazy. Like like look how beautiful these houses is. And I remember like unbeknownst to me, but at that moment a desire for that lifestyle was implanted within me. I was like I want that. I don't know what that is, but I want that. I don't know why I want that, but I want that. You know? Have you ever felt that way like when you were younger like you just felt like I just want that. I want it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why, but I just want, I want to live like that. And you would go home and you think about living like that. Imagine how they live. And imagine how they feel. Imagine how happy that they must be. Imagine how at peace they must be every day. Because look what they have. Right? I mean, even beyond that, like, oh, man. That was one of the first experiences in my life where I actually had began to feel an inferiority. I felt like, oh, I felt lesser in value. Like, I didn't belong in this neighborhood. Like, I, I, I have no business being around here. But, you know, I'm, you know, that was the first time in my life. And that's why it's such a visceral experience. And that's why I'm explaining this story to you. Because you can relate to this, right? Like, where you feel like there's a difference. And there's a stark difference. There's a huge difference between me and those people right there. 
and I don't know what it is, but it's making me uncomfortable and I want to erase that uncomfortability. How many times have you felt like that? You know, I felt like that over and over and over and over and over again throughout my childhood. And that, that, that feeling is something that followed me. You know, uh, I'm going to use an abridged version of some of these upcoming stories, but that's something that followed me t- like, like as time went on. Because year, literally the year after that, I would go into high school and the people around me, like they would have a different swag. They would have boats. They would have live on a lake. They would have like, their parents would buy them cars at 16. Like they were driving around the school. Like, they, like it was a completely different lifestyle. I remember getting to the Royal Farms for the first time. And it's like you live, like when you work like a minimum wage job, for example, you put on that shirt and you come in and you just feel so inferior to the customers. You feel lesser than everybody. You feel beneath everybody. You feel less than dirt, right? And so I remember, especially at Royal Farms, there was, they would like put advertisement on us. They would take these like these little buttons and like say, hey, where's this M&M button? This is M&M advertisement. And like, I remember feeling like literal nothing, feeling like literally less than nothing, feeling like less than trash every time I put that uniform on. I was like, you know, if a super if superhero suit gave someone powers, it would be like the exact opposite. The moment I put that shirt on and began to smell like, like, soak, like I'm soaked in greasy chicken, like my powers just left my body. And like I became less than human and less than value. And it would have reflected my personality. I feel meek and shy and just like, like avoid eye contact and be subservient. And I would like just like listen to every demands of the customer. And that was a lot of my experience throughout high school. You know, a lot of you know, friendships and relationships that I would have probably were for the taking. I shied away from because I felt a lot less lesser in value than the other people around me because of everything that they had and the lifestyle they were living. And I guess, you know, in some ways our minds trick us to believe just because they have those things, they're inherently better. Okay? And so this feeling obviously continues with me all the way up until my my my, my later ages in life. Okay? And so it, it, you know, it's funny because I transitioned, you know, through so many different iterations of this same exact feeling. And so when I'm literally 22 and I'm on my way to live in Los Angeles, you know, what is what is occupying my mind at the time? What is what is the what is the representation of those those houses on on the hills? Uh, what is what is the representation of those houses in Oakley at that time? OK, so. By the time I'm 22, I've transferred cultures and I've gotten to entrepreneurialism because I looked at the mainstream idea of society and the fact that people wanted me to live this way and think these things were valuable and I rejected it. I wanted it to be unique, right? And then while you get into entrepreneurship, you don't feel like the mainstream idea. You know, when people are telling you are valuable like in $200,000 houses, you know you're better than that. You know you're different. You know you're an independent thinker, right? And so that's kind of the mindset I adopted. And so I started to think differently, man. I want different things. I want a billion dollar business. You know, I want, I want a, I want a yacht. I want, a, I want, a, I want a mega mansion in, on the Malibu in the Hollywood Hills on the cliffs. You know, I started wanting Lamborghinis. I started wanting Rafes and Rolls Royces, and I just a private jet. You know, I felt like in order, to, like almost in a way to protect my identity because I didn't value because you know life was telling me to value these things that I didn't have when I was younger. And so I rejected that society and went to the entrepreneurial society and started to value different things like a valuable business that would change the world. I started to value like impact and things like that. Okay. And so um, what was on my mind coming to LA was uh, those different things that I just had listed. But one story, one detail of this story that I forgot to really add, which is a really, really important detail, a very important metaphor to take with you, is that I remember jogging on those late nights. I remember one night we came home with my brother uh, in that transition between 8th grade and 9th grade year, he had given me this book called Fahrenheit 451, okay? 
And I've always been a reader. One of my reading is one of my favorite pastimes. I, love, I sit down and literally just read and read and read and read and read. I love reading. And so naturally, I cracked open this book, Fahrenheit 451. He's like, man, this is a crazy book. Read this book. Okay. And so I read the book and I crack it open. And spoiler alert, you know, uh, this is what the book was about. The main character of the book is Guy Montag. Okay. Guy Montag lives in a literal utopian society where everything is supposedly perfect. Okay. And his job within that society is a firefighter. But it's not like the traditional firefighter that we know in everyday life. What Guy Montag is, is he's a firefighter and his duty is to literally burn books. They create fires. This is a firefighter in this book. Okay. So they live in like a near perfect society. Everything's automated. They have robots and live a beautiful life. They have jobs and things like that. And you know, it, it's, it's a good living, okay? You know, just a typical, stereotypical, typical utopian society that people, you know, depict in books and things like that. And so, but guy, because, but, but reading is illegal. Like, l- learning from books and things like that is completely illegal, okay? And so, it's Guy Montag and the fire department shop to burn books whenever, and whenever somebody, like, has a book, it has a book, it's a crime, and they arrest them and things like that, okay? And so, in this society, at the beginning of the book, Guy Montag is living in this society and everything's perfectly fine. You know, um, this book was written a long time ago, I think like 40s or 30s or something like that, by a guy named Ray Bradbury. He was my brother's favorite artist, uh, I'm a favorite writer for a long time, and he passed away in like 2008 or something like that, uh, just as my brother sent him a letter. And um, so he had to predict a lot of what the future was about. Okay, and so he, he accurately predicted a lot of things in that book about what the future would be. It's like he, so in the book, like they call them like earbuds or something like that, but he was talking about like uh, ear, earphones, like ear, what do you call them? Ear, earpods? Ear, earpods, basically, okay? Um, not earpods, like ear, earbuds, that's what their name is. So he like would talk about earbuds in that book, and you know, he said like a wall screen, which is like a television. Um, he, he was talking about things in that book, like they had like robot dogs and things like that. So, you know, robots coming into fruition, AI. Um, a lot of people in the book had like sleep problems, like the guy, guy Montag's wife had sleep problems. And so she would take these sleep pills, which is, uh, because of the blue light that's coming from our cell phones. In reality, a lot of us do have trouble sleeping or sleeping on a normal schedule or sleeping long enough or really just sleeping the optimal amount. But, uh, yeah, his wife would have like sleep pills and things like that. And so... One of the biggest ideas of the book was that a lot of people, the biggest issues that they like would face in their life, like it, they would feel like literal visceral emotions over these issues and fight, like fight all day over it and trying to solve it, and and really be like very very badly bothered by these uh these issues was like uh, the smaller things that would happen in life, like they would have like a lack of like sleep pills, they would have like enough sleep pills or something like that. Um, the wall screen, which is like the TV, would be broke. And, um, you know, uh, like different, like their AirPods would be broke. The robot dog needs maintenance. And a lot of what their life consisted of was these little trivial things that they really overinflated at all times and made it to be the biggest issues in their life. Okay. And so, you know, really where they, you know, because books were man born, really where they got all their information in, you know, if you want to call that really all of it was entertainment in this book was from like the wall screens and from like the audio that they would listen to in their ear pods and you know the government provided music and things like that and so you can see where this is going with this this book and so in the book guy montag is a firefighter i don't really remember how it was that this uh, actually came about but he actually ended up um going home from work one day with a freaking book okay he's like oh my god i have this book like he kind of freaks out 
but then like after that he's like he starts he starts to get curious and uh so months you know day you know something tells him to hold on to the book days and weeks start to pass but eventually he cracks open the book and starts to read it uh because you know he develops into he develops a, a irritation about the life that he's living for some reason i haven't read this book in like a decade but he starts to look at the book and uh he starts to just, I mean, he starts to look at life around him, and he starts to wonder and get curious about it, and uh, you know, a lot of why is coming to his mind. Why? Why is like you know, I do such and such as I, I follow certain habits throughout my day religiously, and he starts to wonder and get real, 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 uh, develop a lot of askings around why do I do a lot of these things that I do on a daily basis? Okay, which goes back to the basis of this podcast. You know, it's very important for us to look at the thoughts, I mean, the habits that we have, look at the thoughts that's attached to them, and trace that thought back to its origin, because a lot of the thoughts that are in our head are planted in our mind, unbeknownst to us. Okay, so for him, it was like the wall TV and things like that, but he was all—he was always asking himself, like, why Like, why am I thinking these things? And so he gets into reading, and then as his reading, you know, his knack for reading develops, he begins to take books from his job and read them in mass, and store them in like the little vent in his house. Oh snap! I almost fell down these stairs. I always do that in during this podcast. I always skip a stair. But guy Montek starts reading, and eventually, you know, he gets reading. He's super uncomfortable with the society he's in. He feels like a bunch of people's on to him, and then he gets caught. So someone comes to his house and discovers, or his wife or something, and discovers he has these books, and they start to spaz out on him. And so he runs for it. Boom! He jets out of his house. The robot dog chasing him, and guy Montag eventually escapes and ends up leaving the town. He ends up leaving like literal society. He ends up leaving culture. Okay, and so when he leaves culture, um, at the end of the book, he turns around and like looks back at the town he just left, and he's just like thinking about like what the heck is all this. And just as, you know, he's leaving, uh, like a giant, huge B-22 type stealth bomb comes over and drops uh, like a nuclear bomb on the town. And everyone living in there, except for Guy Montag, obviously, because he's gone, like it's completely de-atomized. It's like, like just a race from existence. Okay. And so one of the biggest ideas like that I got from that just at the time was like, wow, like we are very distracted with like the small and trivial things. Um... And we, we, we like we're, we're so obsessed with like the little inklings of culture that we have right here where we are that we forget about the real issues of the world and what really matters. OK. And so uh, I feel like that was one of the themes of the book. But, you know, as an eighth grader, that really like was just like a surface idea. It really didn't mean anything to me. I was like, OK, I put the book down. OK. But where this book begins to resurface in my life was I'm wanting and craving all these things that I'm seeing in culture on the internet. Like, when I'm coming to LA at 22 years old, I, I, like, you don't know how, you don't understand how badly I want to prove to my parents that I'm worth something, that I'm worthy of love, that I'm, I prove to the world that I'm significant, that I'm status heavy. You know what I'm saying? And I want these symbols to prove it. You know, I want to, I want the house in the hills. You know, I want, I want the Lamborghini. I want the Wraith. I want, I want all these things. I want to get a music career to pop off and have millions of fans and millions of followers and people loving my art and just pretty much worshiping me. You know, I needed that stroke of my ego. Okay. And so when I get to LA, this is what begins to happen because I'm craving these things so badly. When we get to LA, you know, we obviously don't have any money. In fact, when I get to LA, my bank account is like negative $300, right? And so with my bank accounts in the negatives and really like no job or anything like that, um, 
we had to find a way to make money, me and my girlfriend. So we say, she has a car, so what would we do? We immediately get to driving delivery. Okay, so we do like, uh, what were we doing at first? Grubhub. Grubhub is the first thing that we started to do. Okay, and so we're driving around the town. We start in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, because at the time, I was also running a little, a little ghostwriting business. I've documented this in another episode, so I'm going to kind of skim over these facts right here. So at the time, I'm running this little ghostwriting business. And I have one client, which is paying like 250 like on an irregular schedule. Sometimes it's two weeks, sometimes it's one week, sometimes it's three weeks. Um, this order is set to be like $2,000 overall. And I'm talking to this other client who hasn't yet sent them payment yet, but we're working together. And it might be a couple of thousand dollar deal. And so I want to be like these people that I looked up to, the Russell Brunson's, the Frank Kearns, and all these different people. I want to be part of this culture, one of these legends. I want to get the two comma club award from Click, Click Funnels. One of my biggest goals, make a million in the funnel to get that award. And just really to show it to the people. And uh, so I was going hard to build this business. But we needed money immediately. And so to support that business, support the idea to have this legacy and these things live on. To get these things that I wanted in life, we started to do the Grubhub. And uh, obviously to freaking live and to pay off this freaking heavy bank account. And so we start riding Grubhub and we start in the literal city of L.A. Okay, and so we get in the city of L.A. And um, we're riding through like the buildings and things like that. You know, honestly, when I got to L.A. for the first time. You know, I was kind of underwhelmed with the city itself. Like, is this really it? And so we're riding and we're doing a Grubhub, but we're going through these like, uh, like, like the Emerson. Like, we're going through these like luxury apartments and things like that, going up and down these elevators to people who have money, which is not a big deal. Um, driving through LA, we discover some quite a few different things than what we have back home. One of the things was like, well, first off, these luxury apartments. Pretty nice, but really not ideal. It's not something that I want. I haven't heard anybody that's an entrepreneur that has one of those that flexes it. And so we're riding through, uh, but we also discover like things like the Baltimore Hotel, which is, I'm not even gonna talk about it. Like that place, man, I walked in there one time to deliver. Last time I will ever deliver to a place like that in my life. Um, we also discovered Skid Row. Uh, some of the homeless people want like lot like we I remember coming into the city for the first time riding past Alvarado Street and seeing tents lined up under the bridge and thinking like what the hell is going on here like I've never seen something that literally spoke to my heart that much like literally if you ever come to LA one of the things that will surprise you the most is that these people like these tent villages like there were like like hundreds probably like of tents in like one neighborhood of homeless people and they have children and animals and things like that living out there um and no one really cares. No one really bats an eye. No one offers to help or anything like that. Um, so that was another one of the things that appealed to me. Like, like it, it was almost like Guy Montag seeing like the problems that were going on in the world outside of his culture, kind of rubbed in his face for the first time. Like, oh, you want a Wraith? You want a Lamborghini? Here, look at this. Do you still care about those things? But of course, steadfast in me were those values that I had. Okay, and so we would go around the city. And we eventually got bored with that practice. So we started to expand. We started to go like to Pasadena. And then we started to go to like Hollywood, deliver out there. And then we started to expand further. And we started to go to West Hollywood. And when we started to go to West Hollywood, that's when things began to change for me. And so I'm, gr- I'm grubhubbing, but, you know, the demographics that I'm serving had begun to change. So we're going to these different fancy like Italian restaurants, $100 orders, places like Ronin's, you know, which aren't, you know, uh, they're pretty freaking fancy. They're pretty expensive places. Like we're going to these different expensive, like luxury restaurants, and just like you always, like have you felt this experience before? You, you walk into a place, and it's just like you feel like you stick out like a sore thumb. You feel like you look like poverty. You feel like you look 
like the poorest thing in the world. Um, that was that's that's what I started to feel like. And we started to get this food and load it in the car, and we started delivering to places like Santa Monica. And we started to ride up through these Hollywood Hills, and so we're going up through these Hollywood Hills, palm trees, houses all packed together, and just like as we're going up the hill, like we get peaks in between the houses of like these amazing, amazing, amazing like views of the city. Like you can see the entire thing, like. It looks like a bunch of stars like laid out there for everybody. Like it, it is insane the views of the city that we have that they have up on those hills. So we would go up to these hills, and then we were also at the time watching this guy on YouTube called Enes Yilzmir, um, and he would like like review these houses in Hollywood Hills that we would always say, "Oh, we're gonna move in that house. We're gonna move in that house. We're gonna move in that house." And lo and behold, we're delivering. Like we're driving up to the food, and when we get to the person's house, he's like, he or she is living in one of these houses that we want to live in. And um, like it's like modern houses, Florida, you know, Florida ceiling glass windows, uh, wood like slick wood designs and neutral colors, and you know the in the driveway they had like a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or a Wraith, you know, these cars that I want to drive. And suddenly I was really confronted with a reality that I was delivering with the people that I wanted to be just like. You know, I was running this podcast, running this Instagram, running this business, and I'm really just a knockoff version of these people right here that have really done it that I admire and so with that dynamic being shoved in my face it reignited that feeling that has existed with me so long throughout my life I started to feel like I was less than nothing I started to feel like poverty was just all over me and that I couldn't erase it no matter how I dressed them out how I looked no matter how I performed because I just didn't have what they had I just weren't who they were do you understand what I mean by that? Like, like you just feel low. You just feel like lower than dirt. You feel lesser than nothing in the, in the presence of some of these people. And it started to really grind away at my confidence. It started to really grind away my self-esteem. I started to hate driving for a long time. It started to make me really uncomfortable. Like, man, like, do they even want me touching their food? Like, having thoughts like that. Like, do I look dirty? Like, uh, it's just a real bad feeling, you know? And that feeling is something that stuck with me because remember, one of my biggest values is like, you know, this that I'm looking at, that I aspire to. You know, these are the entrepreneurs. These are the people who are in the 1%, the people who are innovators who will change the world, right? And so with that, you know, the business had to go on. So I continued delivering. I'm continuing riding through Santa Monica, continuing riding through the city. And uh, But as we're riding through the city, uh, the repetition is carried uh, from those same events months and months and months and months on time because we got to make this money. So we're riding so many times a day. But you know what happens when you're exposed to something like that over and over and over and over again? You kind of build an immunity to it. And in fact, this is what started to happen. I remember riding through some of the cities. I remember riding through Santa Monica one day, really freshly after coming through Skid Row. I don't know how, know how we made it out that way. And I was riding to the Wendy's or something like that to use like our last bit of dollars to get like a Wendy's. Uh, they got this uh, thing called the, uh, the club. I don't know what it's called. I'll look it up for you. I'll post it in the description. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm not posting that in the description, man. It's the number five, I think it is. Chicken Club Asiago Asiago Melt. That's what it is. Chicken Ranch Asiago Melt from Wendy's. Um, you know, the regular, not not the grill. You will love it if you try it. Um, but I remember riding down uh, Santa Monica one day and just looking at the scene in front of me. And I don't know what it was that particular day, but for some reason, something made me just clicked. And I was looking at his black wraith. It was like a thousandth wraith I just saw. The most, the thousandth wraith I ever saw in this particular part of town. Because back in Maryland, 
you see a Wraith. I've never seen a Wraith in Maryland. I don't think I've ever seen a Rolls Royce in Maryland. Um, other than like when we drive to Ocean City, there's this like this house uh, or this dealership that has like one Wraith sometimes. Um, but other than that, these were some of the first times I've seen Rolls Royces and Lamborghinis. But as you frequent West Hollywood and Santa Monica and things like that, these cars become actually quite common. And I remember looking at this Wraith one day and just thinking to myself, do you all really value the same thing? Like, does, does anybody around here want a different freaking car? I remember feeling that way. And just then we were riding on the street past a Lamborghini dealership or something like that. Or a Lamborghini place. Like, you know, you get these random parking lots where a bunch of Lamborghinis are. I'm like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, does anybody want anything different? You know what I mean? And it, and it started to kind of dawn on me as I was looking at that landscape in front of me. Beautiful landscape, by the way. Uh, I believe we were on Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh, but I was looking at all these different people. And I'm just analyzing them, breaking them down into templates and things like that. I'm looking at the oh, every t everyone wants to wear ride a black G-Wagon. Everyone wants a, a Wraith. Everyone wants a Ferrari. Everyone wants a Lamborghini. But really just a Wraith and a Lamborghini. That's really the most of what you would see. And then I would look at the, the way they dress. They're all dressed the same. I would look at the way they walked, the way they talked, the way they associated. It was all the same. And I don't know what it was, but something about it just didn't feel right. Something about it just didn't sit right with me. And it was kind of like... I don't know, it was an unsettling feeling. It was like we're all carbon copies of one another. Like we're all cheap knockoffs of the same exact person. Like I'm looking at these like people and I'm like, is this really what I want to be? I'm looking at their wives and things like that and with the fake, you know, they all get the same plastic surgery routine or whatever like that. I'm like, is this really the life that I want? Is this really who I want to be? But on, on arrival, it really dawned on me that this, this life isn't like rare, rare. This life isn't new. This life isn't innovative. What a lot of people in this life, life is, are doing are they looking at somebody who was once innovative and once that innovation becomes the pattern, once it becomes culture, all they're doing is looking at that innovative person and becoming a carbon copy and putting their own little, own little twist on an old idea and calling it something new. Like, oh, I wore those same exact jeans, but I wore it with this same mainstream belt. And that kind of sort of set my, you know, my life in a spiral, which I've covered in some other episodes, where I kind of just started looking at myself. Like, I was really growing into and in, in developing into something that's, for lack of a better word, played out. Like, I was growing into something that was like, I started to even trace those thoughts. Like, where did that come from? Why do I even want these things? Is it really because I saw Grant with a Rafe and Ty with a Lambo? And because they had private jets and because they dressed this way? And because they lived over here? Is that really the origin of these thoughts? And I started to trace it all the way back to the beginning of my life. Where did even that idea of wanting that house, you know, because bigger and this, this design, this, this template, why is this more value to me? And I started to really think, but more so than anything, I started to think, I don't want to be a clone. I don't want to be a carbon copy. I don't want to be just like everybody else. Because you know what? Just being like everybody else leaves the world the same way it was before you came into it. There's a huge stagnation of ideas 
in the world because all people do is rehash old ideas. And I started to look at this in every facet of my life. Even the business models that I picked up where I scammed and where I actually didn't know how to do some of the things that I was saying that I knew how to do, they were rehashed ideas from somebody who was once innovative. So Ty Lopez, you know, as far as I know, that's where I got the idea of social media marketing agency. That was innovative when he first did it. But all I did was copy that idea and change it up a little bit. All I did was put a, put a new spin on an old idea. Oh, this is my social media marketing agency and it's unique. It's in a new niche because I serve restaurants. And so it's a new idea. It's unique. It's orange and it has this nice logo and it's different, right? But is it? Oh, I'm selling courses, but guess what? I'm selling a course about keto instead of intermittent fasting. And so it's new and unique, right? I started to think, man, is that really how new ideas, is that really how innovation works? I started to break it down and do the math in my head. If I have a social, if Ty Lopez has a social media marketing agency, he solves the problem of people needing marketing on social media. If I make a social media marketing agency that solves, that serves restaurants, am I at, am I impacting the world when I do that? And how am I impacting the world? And after some rumination, I kind of thought like, well, no, I'm not impacting the world because they could just go to him. That the solution to their problems was in existence before I jumped into this market along with the rest of those people who provided the solution already. So really my impact when I think about it is kind of like zero. And it kind of started me think like like got me thinking like so this entire time I read expert seeks and doctor seeks and all these Russell Brunson books and they say to make a niche. But really am I am I misinterpreting the idea? Am I doing that all wrong? And that very moment was something that set me off into a spiral of thinking and craving and wanting to be innovative because even the business that I was running, memoir launch at the time. Um, I just started to think about it like what, what problem am I solving for people how am I solving this problem in a new way that has never been solved and I realized I wasn't and then I realized I wasn't solving it in a way that like any, any of the people that I was working with could have just went to any other ghostwriter and they would have the same exact result and probably better all I'm trying to do is make incremental improvements on a business model that has already existed and a problem that was already solved. Therefore, I'm not impacting anything. I'm not changing anybody's lives. And when I realized that, you know what? I just cut all the clients that I had. I just like stopped working with them all together. I just completely dropped the phone on them because they made me realize like I wasn't really doing anything. I wasn't really being innovative. You see? And that's, I realized I was just another victim of entrepreneurial culture. Okay. And in that sense, I was destroying the idea behind entrepreneurialism in the first place. The idea of entrepreneurialism is to empathize people with people for the purpose of innovation. Okay? Understand what people want so that you can come with a solution in a, in a brand of impact that's different than what anybody's experienced before. And because when you create a business that has already been done, you provide a solution that has already been given... You know, you don't you don't really have the ability because the solution has already existed to say that you've actually impacted anybody. Your impact is very limited when you do something like that. And so therefore, the only way to impact people is to innovate. Okay, because innovation is when you provide something that's new 
and not take an old idea and rehash it. And so, and though like, and so many people, so like, and it's like it got me running down so many different tangents because, I, like, remember earlier in the podcast, I said I looked at culture and what culture was, you know, and I said to myself, well, culture values these things, okay, and then. I transferred to a new culture, which was the entrepreneurial culture, because I didn't want to value those things. That I didn't want to be like everybody else. I wanted to be unique and different. And so I transferred to, to, to being an entrepreneur, which was a different culture, because I thought it would make me different and unique and interesting as a person. But in this moment, I'm also realizing, wait, and now I'm just in the mainstream of another culture. This, this, this movement has grown so much that this is the mainstream now. We're just in another mainstream. We're just all carbon copies of another mainstream. There could be multiple mainstreams existing in the world at once. And think about it. You see it so many times, time and time again online. There's very little innovation. That's why our, like, the world is, is really becoming like, stagnant in a lot of ways. You know, uh, There's not a lot of innovation happening except for a few individuals that are really pushing the culture forward. The rest of us are just here like, not really doing much of anything. Okay, when you how many people wake up every like like have you seen on your timeline say I'm a right I'm a coach I'm a business coach I'm a social media marketing agency wake up at five a.m. grind hustle like how many people do you see online doing some of these same exact old tropes that we've heard time and time and time after time again and when you look at these things do they give you like a new fresh and exciting perspective on life or do you or do they just or are they just the same exact thing that you saw and they just kind of like irritate you because you saw this exact same perspective like just reworded in a different way? Think about all the quote pages on Instagram. They're just taking an innovative idea or innovative principle that somebody once read off on the internet and all they're doing is like putting their own watermark or brand on it. You understand what I'm saying? And it kind of got me going in this interesting little wormhole like, okay, how is it that I actually impact the world on a deep and intense level. How is it that I actually innovate? It's the thought path process that I started to have. Okay? And it led me down this wormhole where I'm... It led me down this wormhole. How many times am I going to say that? That's not innovative. And so I started like listening to like different entrepreneurs and, oh, you know, really immersing myself in this topic of innovation. And one of the first videos I had led to, as you already heard, was the video by Steven Larson, which was about his purple ocean... Over, purple ocean strategy okay uh you know in business there's a red ocean and a blue ocean right a red ocean is uh a market right where you know uh they call it a red ocean because this is the metaphor behind it uh pretend businesses are sharks you've probably heard this a thousand times i'm sorry to bore you with my non-innovative spiel businesses are sharks and customers are fish and if there are too many sharks and you know there's a lot of sharks in the water they're going to kill all the fish and the blood is like a red ocean it's a hyper competitive market where everybody's doing the same exact thing where there's a stagnation in the market because there's the same ideas being recycled over and over and over again that's essentially what a red ocean is what a blue ocean is is where you know there are no sharks because there are no people doing the idea like like there are no people like um in the in the in the in the market already and they're just customers there that no one's tapping into because no one's executing on that idea or no one's executing in that vertical okay so that's what a blue ocean is and so the whole entire idea of niching down which is misunderstood for so long is that you want to 
get out of a red ocean and go into a blue ocean. You want to go where there's no competition and there's so many customers that no one's targeting. And so Stephen Larson's idea of how to do it safely called it was called the Purple Ocean Offer. And when he said there are three personalities of the red ocean, there are the diehard fans of the red ocean. They love the red ocean opportunity. You know, like the red ocean of. Uh, I'm going to get into that a little later because I can explain it a little better in a way I've just actually just stumbled on. That are diehards of the Red Ocean, the people that love the, the old opportunity, the old idea, the old market. And so the Red Ocean becomes the Red Ocean, by the way, because a lot of people, there's an old idea, like let's say social media marketing agency, and that's a market. You know, social media marketing agency are the sharks and the clients are people who need social media marketing agencies. And the market becomes a certain type of way because people just take that idea of social media marketing agency. And then what they do is they rehash that old idea. They just put a small little twist on that old idea and call it innovation. And so then you have a thousand social media marketing agencies that are slightly different because they have different logos or they serve a different niche, all in the exact same market, all putting out the same exact idea, the same exact rhetoric into the world. And so you have a hyper-competitive market and they're all bumping heads and it's just a freaking mess. Okay, and so the diehard fans of the Red Ocean are the first personality of the Red Ocean. They actually they, they love the social media marketing agencies in the way they are. The second, you know, uh, personality of the Red Ocean are the people who are and eh, they don't really carry the way. And then the third personality of the Red Ocean, the people that absolutely hate the opportunity of the Red Ocean. Okay, and so what his suggestion was is in order to create a blue ocean, you look at what the Red Ocean. You know, the, you only serve first of all the people who hate the the Red Ocean opportunity. That they that they inhabit that they inhabit already, and you utilize what they hate to guide your innovation. That's his blue blue his purple auction offer strategy. I remember this is a video I watched. I'm kind of summar, summar, summarizing it because I've talked about this in so many other podcast results. And so, you know, you look at what the third third personality the people that hate the red ocean what they what they like about the red ocean obviously, and then you use what they hate about it to guide the changes that you'll make to that thing. That was his purple ocean strategy. Um, so it would be like this. Cars, for example. People love that cars are fast, that they're shaped, the way they shape, the way they looked. People people like the way, you know, people like uh, the way they shape, the way they look. They like that they uh, they ride long distances, that they ride fast. All these things that you like about cars. Uh, the way the tires are made. They love all these things about the red ocean of cars. But people in the red ocean of cars really the red ocean of cars is internal you know is is just a car okay and so there's a percentage of the red ocean of cars that hate the opportunity that red ocean presents and the thing that they hate about it is that it destroys the environment okay and so if you wanted to use the purple ocean offer strategy you look at what that people that hate the red ocean what they like about it oh they like the way it's shaped the way it looks and then look at what they hate oh they hate that it destroys the environment and then you would innovate on the basis of that which is what tesla did when it took everything that a car is and just made it electric, okay? That's the whole idea behind Stephen Larson's uh, Three Personalities of the Red Ocean, okay? And so I started going in this wormhole about all about this and about innovation in general, which is like, had my mind like spinning it, like, not spinning, had my mind racing at, at speeds that I can't even like fathom. I'm like, oh my God, I got, I've never even heard of something like that. And so that's how you safely create a blue ocean, like, which is not a blue ocean, it's a purple ocean. It's a, it's a mixture between the two because because it's safe but then as time had gone on i started to think not only does this apply to business it also applies to ideas right and so if you think about it like this the red ocean another name for red ocean is just the mainstream right 
It's the mainstream. Mainstream thought, mainstream ideas. This applies to ideas, philosophy, and everything. And what the blue ocean is, is like new ideas. Pretty much hipster, trendy, whatever you want to call it. New ideas that no one's really speaking on as of yet. Okay? And so, if you look at it like this, the mainstream, the red ocean idea in society is like college. College is a red ocean idea. And we could take an old, like a spin, like we could spin that old idea and put a little spin on it. Like, uh, well, this college is Harvard. Well, let's take a spin on it. Put a spin on that idea. Well, this college is University of Maryland. It's like, but they're still competing, right? They're still in the same exact market. It's just a spin on an old idea. Um, a lot of people are operating in this, but but there are the person, they think of the third personality that hates that mainstream idea and wants to do something different. So they talk, so this would happen to me. This would probably happen to you also. I mean, you could probably relate to this. You hate the idea of going to school, getting a career, getting married, dying. I like getting married. I'll keep that one. But you know. <laughs> You know, just that, just that, you know, you know, that same played out, you know, philosophy to life, the same played out approach to life. And so what you think to do in that instance is to do anything else other than that, because you're a personality that hates that idea, that hates that concept. And so what people do to innovate is that they target that third personality, people that hate that red ocean, that mainstream idea, and they target it with things like entrepreneurialism. OK, and so everybody that was in that mainstream they started to hop over to that new and inventive idea of entrepreneurialism because it was new, it was hip, it was cool. But you know what happens? Then that idea of entrepreneurialism has become a red ocean. It has become the mainstream now. Okay, that subculture has become culture. And because the idea of entrepreneurialism in itself is about innovation, it's a conflict you know, to its nature to become culture. Because now we have a bunch of carbon copies that are rehashing old ideas and stagnating with this thing, you know, the, <laughs> stagnating, entrepreneur, like stagnating culture, stagnating that riddle, you know, stag, stagnating that idea when it's an innovative idea by nature. Okay. Now I know this is kind of like woo woo and like spiritual or something like that. <laughs> like, like it's like wordy or whatever, but kind of follow along with me here and so now i feel like we're pushing a period in time where we have to once again look at the red ocean of entrepreneurialism and create another blue ocean using that same exact strategy okay and so um but that carries on into so many different tiers of life okay um it's like this man remember the book fahrenheit 451 okay so Mainstream thought or mainstream ideology. I'm going to kind of uncharted territories. This is like the sixth time I've done this podcast. It's always been like an hour, 30 minutes long. So forgive me if I stumble, stumble a little bit and stop to think and, and really process some of these ideas that I'm bringing. You know, think about the mainstream ideology that we're all in right now. It's like uh, the book Fahrenheit 451. Um, how am I going to trans- transition this? Let me actually sit and think about it. So before I even get into Fern Fire 451, I just want to close up that little story that I was telling. Okay, and so riding up and down the hills of Santa Monica and realizing that everybody was a carbon copy of one another, I started to search into the ideas of uh, what, it, what it means to be innovation, innovative and to be new and fresh and different because that is ultimately what pushes the culture forward. And from the Stephen Larson thing, I started getting books like Zero to One by Peter Thiel, and it literally is all about literally uh, innovation, you know, about doing something new. You know, 
Because if we do the same thing in different ways over and over and over again, nothing changes in the world, nothing is impacting the world, nothing is created in the world, and that kind of really defeats the purpose of what we want. Okay, and, and, and doing the research and learning from all these different books and these amazing people, it kind of put me in a place of rumination. And so from that, I dropped all my cons. Like I said, I peeled back and I restructured Memoir Launch in an entirely different way. And even restructured the way that I thought about the world in this podcast at large. And so looking back on books like uh, Fahrenheit 451, I started to realize the metaphor in all of it. Okay, we are so lost in culture. Okay, culture is the wall TV. Culture is the AirPods or the earbuds. Culture is the robotic dogs. And it's all streaming from this from these people that we look up to. It's all streaming from media or different entities and they're planning these ideas of what's cool and popular in our mind and we're kind of just mimicking it, mimicking it and putting our own spin on it. We're rehashing old ideas. Okay, and so when I started to look at it like that, I started to look at, you know, Guy Montag and his solution to that as a, as a large. So what's representative of society in that book, which is representative of culture, is the town that he was in. And instead of, like, like um, living in and enjoying culture and just orienting a different position around mainstream ideas, he left culture all in, entirely altogether. And so what does that metaphor mean? What does it mean to leave culture? What it means to me to leave culture is to formulate ideas in your mind without the context of any old ideas at all it's it's to formulate ideas in your mind without using the ideas that you've been raised on that you've been taught that you've been trained to believe as a basis being completely radical and inspired by nothing now don't get me wrong that's kind of freaking impossible you know it's not something i figured out totally this is not something that's like 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 law or religious or science or anything like that but when he left the city what is there to like what is there to influence his decision making one man by himself in the middle of nature what is there left to serve as a foundation for the ideas that he has there's nothing there and when we withdraw and like I said, I'm not suggesting withdrawal or anything like that. I'm just suggesting like really sitting back and listening to your own self, listening to your own feelings, listening to your own thoughts. Now, of course, all that in some way, shape, or form is always going to be tainted by what you were raised to feel and what you were raised to believe in. And that's not a bad thing at all. Even if you're regurgitating mainstream ideas, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just another way to live. But we have to step away from culture at large and stop playing the cultural game and define what it is for ourselves that we want to add to the conversations that are being had. Okay? That, that, like, you know, so many people in the world today, what they do is they think they're innovative because they take a mainstream idea, and just like they take a mainstream business, they just put their own little spin on it. Okay? And so, you know, like, like <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the culture, the town in... Like um, Fahrenheit 51 is indicative of all the ideas that one could possibly ever think. Okay? Now, this is like a little spacey, but just a little strange, but just follow me on this one. It's indicative of all the possible ideas 
of what somebody could ever think. Now, think about it when I asked you at the beginning of this podcast, what is looping in your mind over and over again all day? Okay? Now, is that something that I could guess? Is that something that's predictable? Because if you're living in this town in Fahrenheit 451, um, there's a limited amount of things that you can actually complain about. There's a limited, of con- limited amount of concepts that are popular that are coming into you at one time. So, you know, let's just, let's just pretend like, uh, you know, the issues that I named earlier are like ideas because this is, this is just an example. I'm going to get into like more literal real world stuff in a bit, but this is just an example. And so some of the things that you can talk about in that world, you can talk about the sleep pills. You can talk about what's on TV. You can talk about the AirPods. You can talk about the robot dog. Okay. And so you have these old ideas. Okay. And what a lot of people do in society is they take old ideas uh, old mainstream ideas and they think they're innovative because they formulate a new perspective around that old idea okay so in that society like in any society in any culture there's a handful of things that are being talked about a handful of events and ideas that have been circulating and so what people do and they think is innovation they think they're thinking independently they think they come into decisions on their own when really it's somebody just handing them a template of different topics of discussion and they're picking one of those topics of discussion in then they're looking at what's being said about this topic and coming up with a new thing. I mean, it's it, it's like this, man. If you wake up in the morning, right, and the first thing you see is me, and I say to you, we're having cheese for dinner, right? And you say to me, uh, like, in that very moment, because this is what the TV does every single day. Think about when the TV or social media pops up in your timeline. The first thing you'll probably say to me is, Either yes, we're having cheese for dinner, or no, we're not having cheese for dinner. And those are going to be the two most prevalent ideas. And then the innovative mind, quote unquote, will look at those two ideas and try to find something extremely strange that no one's thought about yet. But you know what? We're all still talking about cheese. I planted that idea of cheese in your mind. Okay? And so that society that they live in, in Fahrenheit 451, is like... An idea like cheese, when you wake up in the morning, is going to be presented to you, okay? Because there's limited things to really think about in a society that it, you get what I'm saying with that. But when you when when you say, "Oh, I'm not thinking cheese," or "I am thinking about cheese," when you formulate a position around cheese, you might think you're being innovative. You might think that's an original thought, but what you're missing out on is the is the opportunity cost, the real original thought. What would you have thought to eat for dinner if I never said anything about cheese? Now, obviously, this is a bad example. And after that moment, you'll probably think, what do I really want for dinner? Okay. Unless I keep bombarding you with the same exact question all freaking day, every single second of the day. But what would you have thought if no one had said cheese to you in the first place? Now, that right there is your original thought. Everything else is just reaction. A lot of people think they're making decisions in life and acting in life and acting on life. But really, they're just reacting to the ideas of other people they're formulating new perspectives around old ideas and so when I realized that this was a lot of how my life was going that's why I made the statements I made about the last podcast episode because I used to come on here and think oh Grant Cardone like this Gary V's like this and these are their ideas and these are the things they believe in and I used to come on this podcast even and even on social media and talk about those things and position myself in a particular type of way and because these are not my own original ideas, 
uh, because these are not things that I actually feel in my heart that I even freaking care about. Um, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. You know, cognitive dissonance, dissonance is where there's an uh, 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 there's a discrepancy, like there's a gap in your mind between who you're portraying and who you are, and that causes, for some reason, in human beings, a lot of pain. And I was feeling a lot of pain because I was displaying and portraying something that was not authentic to me. And the unique ideology that had existed in me or had been created in me since I was born was being washed away. I felt like an imposter, like I wasn't myself. I was chasing ideas that fulfilled and gave peace and made other people happy with no knowledge of my own original internal motivators. What actually made me happy or what actually made me feel good. And if you don't know what actually makes you happy or what actually makes you feel good, if those concepts are lost to you, then how could you fulfill them? How could you meet them? How could you ever feel peace? And that's why I said it, you know, at the beginning of this episode, you know, I've been in better positions, but now I don't change clothes at all. Like I don't change like you see me anytime I'll be wearing the exact same clothes. I don't try to put up a, a front or a, I'm transparent in the things that I say in these episodes. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm a delivery driver. I'm not an entrepreneur. I am a delivery driver. That's what I do. That's my profession. I deliver food. And I'm going to also make a billion dollar business. But that's besides the fact. Okay. I'm a delivery driver right now. My big kill just got shut down. You know, I couldn't pay for this podcast for two weeks. That's why I didn't post for so long. I hadn't posted in so long because I had to pay to get the podcast back on. They shut down my bank account, man. And I'm not afraid to express it. I'm not afraid to say that because I don't have to copy the image of what I think success is in order to, pers- to, to persuade people to follow or listen to me or feel good about me. All I have to do is push out myself. I don't go, even in delivering driving now, I feel joy, I feel happy, I feel free and, and limitless because guess what? The people in the Hollywood Hills, they might really look up on me, look down on me and be like, oh, he's low value because he's a delivery driver. But guess what? I don't have to feel anything about that. I left culture. And so whatever culture plays around with, whatever concepts or ideology culture plays around with, it's its own to bear. I formulate my own values. My, 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 my value is formulated by my own ecosystem of thoughts and feelings about the world. I make up what value is. I don't have to subscribe to what they feel like value is or what somebody else feel like value is. And when you can make up what value is in your own mind, when you can make up what's cool is, when you can make up what drip is based off your own original feelings, when you can set your own goal lines, then you can feel anything you want. That's one of the biggest tricks the world plays. You don't have to feel about some of the things that are going on in the world. Okay? And so... I feel a lot of joy. I feel a lot of fulfillment. I feel a lot of peace in my life. And I bring this podcast to you because I want you to feel those things too. Okay? This idea of what I'm talking about is, is beyond just silly metaphors. It's, it's reality. It's very much real. Okay? I was just watching a few days ago, or a few weeks ago now, probably two weeks ago. I was re-watching actually a movie called Inception. If you haven't seen Inception, it's a very, very good movie. Uh, I really like it. Okay. Now, it's not like, you know, like super, you know, state of the art like Parasite. Parasite is a brilliant movie. But Inception is a very good movie. You know, I really like, uh, what other movie do I like? Um, Moonlight. Brilliant movie. 
Par- uh, what other movies do I really like? Mm, I don't know. I really like Parasite. I think Parasite's my number one movie right now. But uh, I love Interstellar. It's a very, very good movie, too. But Inception is a great movie, okay? And the basis of this movie is this. And it really made me start to think. Like, I watched this movie 10 years ago, and it really hadn't hit home. But it really makes me think now that I look at it. So here's the concept of the movie. The main character in the movie is Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know his movie character's name, so I'm going to call him Leonardo DiCaprio. And what Leonardo DiCaprio's job in the movie is to do, what Leonardo DiCaprio does in the movie is he uses a machine, like a little suitcase, a machine that can fit in a suitcase, a piece of technology, to, when people fall asleep, he literally enters their dreams. Okay? Super cool concept. And when he enters their dreams, how he makes money is that like let's say they're are like a, a notable person. He maneuvers through their dream and with a particular type of strategy that allows this person to confess a secret that society or the world might want to know, like a business competitor might want to know. Like they go in people's mind and they extract their secrets, okay? In order to, you know, sell that information and make freaking money, okay? Or to help a faction or a, you know, or a it's usually like business situations or things like that it's usually businessmen want the secrets of other business and things like that okay and so Leonardo DiCaprio he goes in their mind he goes in their dreams in his technology and he constructs a maze that leads this person to like uh it leads them literally through their subconscious uh and it leads them through a series of decisions or a series of uh influences he influences them through a series of you know uh suggestive I don't know, parts of the maze, I guess, in their brain. It's not a literal maze, but like he walks you through your subconscious, okay? And he walks you to a point where it's like like a safe or something that's representative of a secret they have in their subconscious mind or their real mind. And he gets them to open the safe and he knows their secrets and he goes and sells them to other businesses and things like that. At the beginning of the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio is, you know, this is the information that we have. He is banned from the United States for a crime that is, hasn't been described. It's, it's nondescript, okay? And so... He wants to get back to the United States, obviously. He's in foreign countries and he's making money. Um, well, he's, he's, he's a criminal in the United States, not banned from it. He ran from the United States because he's a criminal in the United States. And so, in the movie, this is some super fascinating stuff. Um, the first mission he's on, which, well, the first, like, he goes into the mind of this Japanese business owner, okay? And um, this guy, like... Um, you know, a lot of the, the business owners in the movie, or some of them are aware of the fact that people can go into their dreams and they got like defenses against it and stuff. And so Leonardo DiCaprio at the beginning of the movie is going into this Japanese business owner, like he go, he's going into his mind and like, the, like, he, like he drops the ball, he fails on the mission and the guy realizes that Leonardo DiCaprio is in his mind and they all wake up. And so when they wake up, the guy confronts Leonardo DiCaprio, but it was all, a, it was a test from the very beginning. Okay, so he knew Leonardo DiCaprio was going to try to go in his mind. Okay, and in that first beginning scene, you see a strange woman interfering with Leonardo DiCaprio while he's trying to do his work in this guy's subconscious. And it's later revealed in the movie that that woman is Mal, his wife. Okay, and so as the movie progresses, uh, the Japanese business owner then asks Leonardo DiCaprio, like, yo, like, I've heard about this legendary thing that, you know, people like you can do. Well, that you can do specifically. Uh, I know it's just a concept because they don't know if it's real or not. 
but I, I've heard that this thing can be done. And what this thing is called is inception. And what se- inception is, instead of going and taking secrets from somebody's mind, what they do is they take an idea and they plant it in somebody's mind and they make them, you know, they plant an idea in somebody's mind, okay? And um, what that idea does is once they plant it in their mind and they wake up, that idea, you know, it's like uh, when you come up with unique ideas on your own or ideas in your mind and you start to entertain the idea and tend to the idea and raise it if it's as if it's your own and it becomes something that changes your life. Like let's say I, woke, I went in your dreams and planted the idea of an athlete in your mind and you wake up and you would entertain the idea of starting a sport for some reason. And so you would get like workout equipment, gym clothes, you see yourself as a jock and it would change so many different aspects of your life, your diet, your nutrition, your habits, all of that, your sleep schedule, all of it. Okay. Um, and so he was like, hey, I heard you can do this thing at Inception. And Leonardo DiCaprio was like, I don't know. I don't think it's real. And then the Japanese uh, businessman, he's like, yo, if you can do this for me, because there's this opposing business owner, um, some white dude, and he's like, this is an opposing, impo- opposing business owner, and he's our competitor. Okay, he's about to own 50% of all energy companies in the world. Okay. And so I want, well, it's his dad that's about to own 50% of all energy companies in the world, but his dad is about to die. And so he says, I want you to go to this guy and implant the idea that when his dad dies, he'll disband the, like, this empire of energy companies so that our company can flourish. And if you do that, Leonardo DiCaprio, is what the business guy said, the Japanese business guy, he said, I'll, I'll make the appropriate calls so that you can go home to your family. So at this point in time, we realize that Leonardo DiCaprio's wife, Maul, is dead. Okay, she died and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is banned from the United States and he has children that are in the United States. Okay, and so Leonardo DiCaprio is enticed by this idea, and so he accepts it because he wants to go home and see his children. And so, in the movie, um, when he accepts this task, he immediately begins training. Um, he goes and he finds a team of different people, an architect to build, you know, amazing that person's subconscious, and you know, he, he gets this team of people uh, uh, to do this mission. And as you know, he's building this team, practicing over and over and over again this 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 idea of inception, because in order to uh, perform inception you have to go deep within somebody's subconscious so it's a very tricky thing because you have to go like deep in their subconscious like you have to go like you know when you sleep and you have a dream within a like you wake up in your dream like you wake up and you're still dreaming but you don't know it you have to go in a dream within a dream within a dream so you have to go like to the lowest layers of their subconscious it's real crazy stuff if you haven't seen this movie and um so he's practicing to do it because it's a very tedious mission um, there's a bottom level like if you go within a dream 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 or something like that like it's four levels um, you know there's a bottom layer and it's like time as you go further down like within a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream it starts to slow down okay and uh, some real freaky stuff can happen the bottom level is called limbo okay and so what happens is learning as he's practicing with his team his wife Maul keeps coming into his subconscious and like ruining his practices and no one really knows why, but they do know she's dead. Okay, so long story short, they get to the plane, you know, on a plane with this business guy who he's supposed to go in his dreams. Um, it's Leonardo DiCaprio, his team, and the Japanese business guy. And they go into this other business guy, the white guy, his dreams. And um, so they're guiding them through his dreams to, like, uh, in order to, you know, guide them to all the way down to like, the deepest parts of his subconscious to plant the idea of disbanding this business. And so we get the side storyline of Leonardo DiCaprio and his wife, you know, pretty much as that story's coming to a close. Okay, and so this is what happened to Leonardo DiCaprio's wife. 
Leonardo DiCaprio accepted his mission because he knew Inception was actually real because he had done it before. You see, as you go into somebody's subconscious, if you go within a dream, within a dream, within a dream, within a dream, time starts to slow down. And so on the lowest level, on the fourth layer of dreaming, like a hundred years is like a second on the surface or something like that. So you can live an entire life without time passing in reality. And uh, yeah, so he had done it before. And him, so him and his wife, because they had known about this technology for a long time, had always been experimenting with dreams. And so they had actually, at one point in time in their lives, had gone down to the lowest level, limbo. They already had children, they already had life, but remember, time on the surface passes regularly. You can live 100 years in the bottom level, in limbo, in the bottom level of your subconscious in this dream world and create the life of your dreams and live there your entire life and wake up and not only, like a second hasn't even passed. And so he went, he goes into the, this, the lowest level of his, of, 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 he goes into limbo with his wife and they're living life down there essentially like 60, 70, 100, like 80 years. They're living their entire life in limbo. They're creating the things that they want. They're enjoying their time and literally years and years and years and years and years and their perception is passing by. And so, but like I said, on the surface, no time is passing at all, essentially. And so Leonardo DiCaprio and his wife, Maul, is enjoying their time in limbo and creating the life of their dreams. But as that goes on, you know, there are two ways to wake up from a dream. Okay, the first way is to kill yourself. And like how you die in a dream and you wake up in real life. And the second is, you know, you give them like someone on the surface gives the person a kick like they throw a bucket of water on them. But, uh, you know, those are just two ways. And so, um, and so, uh, so as time goes goes on in a dream, his wife becomes very infatuated with the idea of living this life with him in limbo, where they can live forever. Okay, but internally, Leonardo DiCaprio has this struggle, like he has to return to reality and be with his kids and live a regular life because limbo was cool, but real life still exists. And so, while they're in limbo, what he does is he goes into a part of his wife's subconscious and he implants the idea that the reality that they're living in this fake reality in the dream in limbo isn't real and in order to get back to real life they have to kill each other so he implants that idea into they have to kill themselves so he implants this idea into her, to, to her mind and she they both end up doing it they in limbo so they go and they put their head on a train track and they kill it they, they kill themselves and then so they wake up to reality but the seed is already planted in Maul's mind and when she wakes up she starts tending to it every single day and it starts to blossom and takes control of her mind like a plant growing roots and just like a like a fungus just wrapping her mind and so she can't stop obsessing over the, this idea that her life is a dream because he implanted in her mind that the idea when they were dreaming that this life is a dream that we have to wake up and so even when she wakes up this life is a dream is repeating in her mind over and over and over again and that she has to kill herself to wake up but she's in actuality now and so what ends up happening is that she sets up some crazy stuff to make it seem like he killed her to convince her to kill herself with her because she thinks she's dreaming and so what she ends up jumping off the roof and committing suicide because she wants to wake up from a dream which is her real life at this point in time because he planted that idea in her mind and so you know when she kills herself she planted all types of evidence to force him into killing himself to wake up from this quote-unquote dream which was actually reality and so he was kind of framed for murder and he ran from the USA and that's why he was banned from the country and so they successfully plant this idea in this business owner's mind at the end of the movie. And uh, he wakes up like, I'll disband my father's company. And then um, Leonardo DiCaprio gains interest to the USA and sees his kids at long last, which 
We don't know if that ending is even real or not. Um, but that idea from the car, like when I was, I remember watching that movie and just like, I don't know, I was so enamored with the concept behind it all because it reminded me so much of what reality is like. Okay? What reality is like. Everything in reality is primed to plant ideas in our mind like the movie Inception. And so back when I'm a young kid and I'm running through Oakley, right? And I'm looking at these houses. That, I, that seed is already beginning to grow. Why is it that as a young kid I think this neighborhood or this house or these cars make me a better person, make me a more valuable person? Since a very young age, this seed was planted in my mind and it began to grow. People like the movie Inception. Not people or entities outside of us, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know. It could be automatic. But things like the media, things like other people, family, culture itself, advertisements, all along Santa Monica Boulevard, all these billboards you see, the sole purpose of them is to plant ideas in your subconscious. And then you tend to them as time goes on. And so the question that you have to ask yourself is, which ideas have been planted in my mind from forces outside of myself and which one, which ideas are my own original ideas and actual feelings, okay? And so, so many of us, especially as of late, have ideas planted in our mind, like mainstream ideas, and they're taking control and running our emotions and destroying our lives day by day. We wake up in the morning and all we think about is, oh, coronavirus. Oh, am I going to get sick? And you see everything in your life through the lens of that. Oh, did I touch that door handle? Corona. The George Floyd and the riots. But think about it, what approach are you taking to this? Because then you would have, you have these old ideas, these, these, these mainstream ideas implanted in there, these mainstream false beliefs, right? But then what do we do in our mind? Our mind tricks us into, you know, believing that these are our own ideas and then we tend to these ideas and help them grow because we're not sure of what, we're not, our mind doesn't know the difference between our own ideas and ideas that came from somewhere else, Okay. But once we believe something, we have the cognitive bias called, what is it? Commitment consistency bias that makes us commit and grow these ideas. And so what do we do in order to kind of feel better about the fact that these ideas are coming to our own? We have an old idea coming to our mind. And then we rehash it and put our own spin on it. And we, think, we feel comfortable with it because we feel like, okay, this is my opinion. And so you wake up in the morning, the ideas implanted from media or from the people around you, let's say the ideas. George Floyd, okay? And we think we're being innovative and have our own original thoughts because while George Floyd, the, the root thought is le looping in our mind all day, we're coming with these new and quote-unquote original and innovative stances around it like, okay, well, I'm all lives matter or oh, I'm black lives matter. We're, we're taking an old idea and think it's a new idea because we're changing, we're, we're creating a new positioning around that idea. We're taking a new stance around that idea. And so we'll see things like, Black Republicans, for example. Oh, this is a new idea. I'm black and Republican. No, you had the root idea is still old. You know, you just took a new perspective or a new stance on it. Nothing has changed. You know, and so where while we think we're creative, while we think we're coming up with new ideas every day, the truth of the matter is most of the ideas, the things that are looping in our brain, they're reflections of exactly what we see on screens or exactly what is common chatter, which exactly what is common conversation. Because these ideas don't originate with us. The screen's not mimicking your mind. 
your mind is mimicking the screen. Okay? And that really is the entire idea behind this podcast. We've been brainwashed to obsess over and over again through constant exposure about things that really have nothing to do with us and our us and our lives. Isn't it crazy how that happens? And we we think we're being creative and new and innovative by saying, what like like let's say the idea like it's like the cheat like me saying cheese. Somebody says cheese to you, which cheese might be replaced with anything like riots, protests, Black Lives Matter, and the thing that loops is our opinion on that thing. But the opportunity cost is, guess what? Our own original unique ideas about the way we should live our own lives. We're trapped in culture and our individuality is destroyed. Okay? We're living in a template. Within this, you know, within this society, within this culture, people are so predictable and easily thwarted and easily defeated because the realm of things which most people can consider is very finite. Okay? And so if I were to ask you, what's your think what are you thinking about? What is the most prevalent thought that you have in your head every day? You know, I could just look at the media, really, and look at the top five things that are trending on the media and assume really, probably really accurately that it's one of those things that's been looping in our minds. People are very predictable in that way. And that's why we have a culture of cultures. That's why we have a culture of different factions instead of culture of individuals. Okay? So we have Black Lives Matter. That's, that's, a, that's a faction. Or All Lives Matter. Or Blue Lives Matter. Those are factions. But those factions should be made of, 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 of individuals instead of people who should be individuals plugged into this one mass and being controlled by a huge set of groupthink. You see what I'm saying? Like, like it, it's literally insane. It, you know, and they try to force... It's funny because the world tries to coerce you. The world, the, the, the world tries to force you down a particular pathway. It tries to force you to choose on an old idea. Okay? Instead of coming up with your own new ideas. They'll say things like, silence is complicit. Man, silence ain't no complicit. Silence is just silence. So what does that mean? Silence is complicit. That means say something about this issue. Which means think about this issue. So when you try to think of your best new and middle ground and innovative thing to say, guess what? You're still thinking and obsessing about the same exact issue. And so in that way, you're predictable. You're still thinking about the riots even if you come with a different hashed up opinion on it. It doesn't matter. We're under a mass, mass, mass. I guess it's like Inception. It's a mind drill and a mind drill and a mind drill. The biggest trick that, and it goes all the way until we're like, from the inception of us, you know, we have to be like Guy Montag and leave culture and not really just pick from the, you know, try to rehash old ideas within culture. It's only when we leave culture and we innovate that we can push culture forward because we're introducing something new instead of considering our stance on something that's old, which people have done over and over and over again. Black people who become Republicans, you're not pushing something new. You know, you're just a fancy sprinkle on an old idea. You're still a Republican or you're still a Democrat, um, whatever you choose to be. Uh, even even beyond that, it's like. Uh, man, it's, it's so much to say, like 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 business, for example. So many people say, oh, this is the first black owned cell phone business. 
the first black-owned payment processor. Well, the world already has a payment processor, no matter the race of the person behind it. Putting a new hash on an old idea doesn't make it a new idea. You're not impacting the world that way. We are literally robbed of our impact because we're tricked to focus in on old ideas. One of the biggest tricks that life played on us is the idea that when you wake up, you have to select from a template of issues provided by life. They say, look, here are my hands, red pill or blue pill. When you can look around the room or look around the world and choose any pill you want. It's the illusion of choice that is breaking people down. And so, you know, we wake up, even when we're born, like, even, even like things like, like race, we have to like, like it, there, there's an assumption automatically that we have to choose from, we have to pick a struggle essentially. That we have to pick something that's ailing our lives. Like our mind, like it's like the idea that our mind should be problem oriented is assumed because people say, oh, what, like, like it's, it's an automatic assumption. Like what is your struggle? Like if you're black, you have to pick up, like you have to be poor from the hood. You have to be oppressed by the man. You have to be oppressed by racism. You have to pick a seed to implant in your own mind. When really, there's a third option. You don't have to, you don't have to, man, you don't have to pick, oh, I, I, I'm like people who are racist against me or they're not. You can just pick to not really participate in the idea of racism at all. You can define the, the, the experiences that you face as beautiful as pot as anything. It doesn't have like you don't have to pick a struggle and then look at your the entirety of your life through the lens of that struggle. And that's what I mean. The idea you pick a seed to plant in yourself and then like that seed begins to be tended by your own mind and everything like it's, it begins to take roots and everything is seen through that lens. You know? I had uh you know like the guy uh from the from the from the news station, one of the guys from the news station came to my girlfriend work one day. You know, and they were just literally doing like work, like, and he went home and posted on Facebook, like he accused them of being racism, racist, you know, my girlfriend's black, <laughs> you know, she's light skin home, be it, but like, I don't, I don't, now I don't think he accused her necessarily, but I think he accused her black coworker is what it was. I don't think he accused her, but he accused the black coworker and the staff. Okay. That's the honest story. And uh, my girlfriend was like, what is he talking about? And so many time after time after time after time, I'll be like, I'll see it that exact same way. A lot of people, like black people particularly, will say, um, which shout out to my black folk, I'm not down on you, I'm not dogging you at all. You know, what I'm saying is this. It, 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 is, it kills your resourcefulness to think that you have to choose a problem. A lot of people feel like they believe, they sell themselves so hard on the idea of racism you know, like they'll say things like, oh, I wish I could make a million dollars, but the man, the government, white people are oppressing us. Well, I mean, there are black people that are getting rich every single day, you know, but you let, you know, like you, they, you know, wait, you wait, you, you start life on this path and they trick you into the idea of you have to choose an issue from this template of issues. But they never teach you that there's an alternative to that. And that alternative is choosing peace. That alternative is choosing to view and perceive the world from a new set of ideologies, a new idea, a new identity, anything that you want. You can create and envision anything that you want. 
Silence is complicit. No, it's not. You can think and feel about whatever you want. You don't have to participate in culture. You can be Guy Montag. You can leave culture and formulate ideas and visions and things that you feel on your very own. And that's all I had to say in this podcast episode, man. It's like the fifth time I've done this podcast episode. So, man, I'm glad we finally got through it. I know it's been like an hour, 50 minutes, a freaking long podcast episode. But, yeah, man, that's the idea. You know, you can formulate new creative ideas from scratch. Now, like I said, I know this is kind of like very conceptual. And like it's very hard to not be influenced by anything at all. Everybody's influenced by something in some way, whether it's tiny or small. But the idea remains, you know, you have to work hard to think from a clear space. And just really watch. Whenever 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 what the things that you're thinking is a repetition of the things that you're seeing, the things that you're hearing over and over again. Be wary of where you're headed. Be wary of what you're feeling. Be wary of how you're being manipulated. Okay? Uh, business, culture, uh, business and sales are very easy. You know, and the whole idea behind billboards and sales and marketing is that you plant an idea in someone's head. You worm it in their head through exposure time and time again. It's exactly how the media works. Okay? And I'm going to talk a little bit about this and how we can actually have our own part in planting ideas in the masses' minds, in, in the world minds, in a, in a beneficial way, in a helpful way, in the next episode. But I actually think I'm gonna cut this episode short because I said a lot of things and I, I pretty much hit the nail on what I really wanted to say and it's getting up to two hours long. So without further ado, man, I just wanna say, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate you so much for tuning in this episode. I appreciate you so much for listening to these ideas that I had to bring to you. I appreciate you so much. You know, I hope you appreciate the night and the sounds of the night and the ambience of it and, and, and the experience of walking out here with me and experiencing the world and the beauty in it. I hope you take those deep breaths. I hope you feel liberated. I hope you look at the world and like people in this coronavirus era, and I don't even want to talk about that idea, but people in this era want to say these uncertain times that we live in. Oh, it's hard to do this, that, and third. Oh, the economy's crashing. You can view it whatever way you want. You can view it whatever way you want. These don't have to be uncertain times. I hope you look at the world and understand the beauty and the vibrance and all of it. And I hope you I hope you take it in. I hope you feel it. I hope you feel it radiant through your body. I hope it excites you and makes you happy every day. It makes you happy every day. You don't have to toy along with the trivial issues in society. You can look outside of it like Guy Montag and understand what is the bigger picture of it all. And what is it that I'm trying to solve? You know, events, they change every now and then. Sometimes net neutrality, sometimes it's anything else. And you know, like Bruce, the Bruce Lee saying, I hate to use a cliche on an episode like this, but he says, you know, the man who uses a thousand kicks, whatever the heck. You know, an event, you'll build an opinion on it and it'll be gone. If you have a goal that you set for yourself, something that you really want to pursue, you, ha- you set your opinion on it, and then you work towards it, and because that's not fleeting, because that's not change, your efforts are cumulative, and you begin to solve the problem that you feel needs to be solved. Because the work never changes, and it builds up and builds up and builds up. So, man, I hope you leave this episode deciding what you want for yourself, deciding what, what you feel for yourself. Whenever someone brings about something that happens on TV, that something that happens on the media, it is okay to block them out. It's okay to shut it down. It's okay to think and feel what you feel. 
okay? But at this point in time, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. I feel like I'm missing a little bit, one metaphor that I meant to say in this episode, but it doesn't matter. This is Dallas from the Grand Design Podcast, and I appreciate you so much for listening. So if you enjoyed this episode, I would like to offer you or ask you, as always, to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating on this podcast because those ratings super duper help. I read all of them. Um, we had a friend of mine rate the podcast the other day, which I really appreciate that. It means the world to me. It's kind of where it was actually like they're a big fuel to me every single day. So if you could rate the podcast and leave a little message, I would appreciate that a million times, you know, a million times over. So this is Dallas from the Grand Design Podcast, and I'm going to cue the outro music. Peace out. I hope you all have a great night.